Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which you talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. I'm Edwin Davis, and joining me this week, through the miracle of satellite technology, is returning guest Emily Benita. Hi, Emily. How's it going? Hi, Ed. I'm grand, thanks. How are you? I'm good, yeah. It's a little strange because uh, usually Matt and I record very, very late at night, his time, and reasonably late at time, my time, but uh, you and I are able to record uh, what amounts to very early in the morning for me, which uh, is is nice because it means I'm going to have the whole day to edit this, but also, uh, yeah, it's just very strange because uh, it's light outside and there's like a whole day of promise ahead as opposed to, you know, the crushing sense that, oh, I've got to go to work tomorrow. That hasn't quite set in yet. It's a great way to start the day. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. We'll jump straight into the news for this week, and I think we have to start with the news that broke over the last couple of days that Chris Hardwick is going to be rep- returning to Talking Dead and all his asso- uh, associated AMC programs for people who haven't been following the story. Chris Hardwick is a, uh, a comedian and TV host and podcaster who was accused by his ex-girlfriend Chloe Dixter, Dixter of uh, long-standing sexual and emotional abuse and he was he was taken off of Talking Dead and all of AMC's panels at Comic-Con for a while while pending an investigation. Uh, that investigation apparently wrapped up, despite not talking to Chloe Dixter about anything that happened, which, I don't know, I've only seen a few episodes of Law & Order, but that certainly seems like an oversight in terms of investigating accusations of something. So he's going to be returning to Talking Dead and presumably his forthcoming talk show, Just Talking, in the near future. Now, you and I talked about this on an episode that ended up being lost because of technology messing us messing us around. I feel like uh, we should we should uh, bring in the context which Ed and I have tried to record this episode. <laughs> this is our third time, I think. So this yep. might be third time lucky. But yeah. we've started to refer to it as the curse. So if at any mm-hmm. point you hear us talking about breaking the curse, I I came into this episode rallying like this curse is going to get so broken it's not going to know what's hit it so there's a Mm -hmm. lot of my uh my my issues with chris hardwick that have been lost to the ether Mm -hmm. because we were discussing this when chloe dixter's medium post first came out and i feel like i think it's his fault ed i think chris hardwick Mm -hmm. is behind this curse because he can't clearly stand to have consequences to his actions and so my mm. blistering critique, which is incredibly accurate, has been lost in the ether. I'll just recap. Chloe Dixter is an Im- immensely brave and courageous person to open up about a severely traumatic relationship that was had every single hallmark of abuse there's no way that you could read that account and come away with saying that it was anything other than abuse, but some people have tried. Mm. Um, and uh, God bless them because they're clearly making the world a better place. Imagine having the time to be able to do that. Anyway, that's a slight tangent. Fact is, Chris Hardwick, even though he wasn't named as such in the post that Chloe Dixter wrote, it was incredibly clear for all who were even vaguely aware of that network um, in terms of 
uh, the people and, and relationships and, and who they knew and kind of in a more literal sense the nerdist network and framework knew who it was and things went reasonably quiet will wheaton sort of did the placeholder i need to think about this mm. te- uh, tweet and then never came back and talked about it <laughs> he did come back but just just didn't just didn't mention it again and fair enough it's incredibly hard if you if you don't know that someone that you're incredibly close to has been abusing someone it can be a really shocking disorientating experience and it's not I understand that you don't necessarily want or you know you don't actually owe anyone even if you are a public figure an incredibly immediate public response but at the same time to just kind of everyone's seems to just be ignoring it and it seems to be this idea of like i remember watching super nanny right and mm-hmm. joe frost her main behavioral technique was essentially the naughty step like a timeout on the naughty step which was when everything was running too high and she would send whatever kid that was behaving badly to the naughty step for a timeout and they'd have a chance to remove themselves from the situation calm down come back and then solve the situation this is not a case for the fucking naughty step. This is not a sin bin situation. It's someone who, in a in an immense position of power, as Chris Hardwick is, because he is essentially the founding frat boy. Say frat boy. You know what I mean? Not frat boy. Mm. Like the the nerdy sidekick of the frat boy. He's probably in the yeah. back of Van Wilder party liaison somewhere in a in an extra scene. He uh, and is just immensely sociopathic and self-centered and some of the details in chloe dixter's account are genuinely like horrifying in how psychopathic sounding they are just the complete lack of empathy and that other people have witnessed this medical professionals and family members and have gone there is something not right here and this is the thing that really gets me in terms of like how we talk about the wider context of the Me Too conversation and the shift, which is I don't understand why people are so surprised that in an, an immensely competitive cutthroat industry environment. Oh, it's like, oh, why, why did why was this immensely bullying psychopath at the top? How how? could he possibly abuse women it's part and parcel of it and these people treat everyone around them horribly Mm. so to then i then wonder like who is chris hardwick who is giving him his job back because that's clearly someone who is in some way protecting themselves and there are more questions to be asked there it's not up to you know there's been no legal repercussions because chloe dixtra as far as i'm aware hasn't pressed charges and that's entirely her own decision she mm-hmm. seems to be, thankfully, in a much better place with herself. And I just wish her nothing but the best. But it is totally bizarre to me when simultaneously we seem to be living in a kind of hyper-liability culture, even though regulations seem to be being slashed down like uh, trees in the jungle that are in your way, that you would then bring back someone who is so liable Surely, even if, you know, whether you want to say that it happened or it didn't, (laughs) it did. 
But regardless of that, someone with that much negative cultural currency around them, why? Why? And someone who tweeted expertly, uh, oh, no, you know, Chris Hardwick, because they had to give him his job back, you see, because he's the only geeky guy who could sort of talk a bit about stuff he liked. <laughs> and that's it. Yeah. Like, what, what is actually exceptional about Chris Hardwick? Genuinely. Could someone point that out to me? Like, I've, I listened mm-hmm. to a fair few of his Nerdist things, and he just sounded, you know, relatively enthusiastic. And presenting is a hard gig. It is. I'm not yeah. trying to diminish that. But I don't see, you know... He is not the only Walking Dead fan or commentator or critic. No, I'm, as you can probably tell, blistering critiques are plenty. I'm furious. It, I just, yeah. I, there is no level on which I understand it. Even, even if you take away, you know, a feminist reasoning of treating people decently, just in cold, hard business, I don't understand yeah, because it's not like like this is also happening directly after like James Gunn being fired from going to the Galaxy Three for bad tweets, essentially, yeah. and that happened. Obviously, there's a whole more complicated thing about the people. A lot of people dredging that up, doing it in bad faith and because they're on the far right and things like that. But the business rationale for that kind of does make sense in the sense that Disney are just so averse to any controversy that they're just happy to cut someone loose. Well. Oh, apart from Johnny Depp, though. Yeah, I was going to say, as I I was saying it, I was thinking, well, I guess not so much. But, you know, they're they're clearly like, well, this is getting a lot of attention and a lot of bad attention. We should cut this guy loose, regardless of whether or not the reason that people are doing this is genuine outrage or whatever. Whereas, yeah, it doesn't seem like bringing back someone who seems like they could be such a lightning rod for controversy over the you know, the last couple of months in the form of Chris Hardwick and someone who, as you said, doesn't really seem to have any uniquely marketable skills that would necessitate him being essential to Talking Dead. Like, everyone was seemed very happy that Yvette Nicole Brown, formerly of Community, was going to be hosting the panels for AMC during Comic-Con. And I think she was also listed as, like, the interim host of the show, and everyone was like, oh, yeah, she, like, loves the show and she's really bubbly and kind of charismatic she seemed like she would would have been a good pick uh and certainly as qualified if not more qualified to talk about the walking dead than chris hardwick who is really kind of an empty suit who can just spout vague opinions about things he liked even talking about shows that's largely terrible and the thing about bringing in the james gunn point is of course disney is what it appears that Disney is more concerned about in that realm is losing Trump-supporting audience, of losing mm. that group, because none of the Trump people are coming after Johnny Depp. They're yes. coming after James Gunn about, admittedly, pretty shockingly just bad. Not even They're not funny jokes, and they're just a bit weird. Yeah. You know? But we've all, we've all done bad, bad Twitter jokes. I hold my hands up. Um, <laughs> you know, however many years ago... Um, but we can just forget that Johnny Depp was um, a restraining order was put on him because a judge saw Amber Heard's actual evidence in a court of law granted her a restraining order. But you know he made a shit ton of money for Disney through Pirates of the Caribbean because oh he's a bit like Keith Richards how kooky and he's going to be in the next oh, I always forget the actual name you know the other Harry Potter films you know the Fantastic Beasts thank you. 
but you know because a certain audience isn't kicking up about that Disney don't really care and it's interesting that you talk about Yvette Nicole Brown something that I saw recently at the Just for Laughs comedy festival in uh, Montreal Variety had a 10 comic showcase um, of comics to watch one of them being um, a guy called Darren Knight um, I mm. nearly called him Darren Grimes there, but that's a whole different story. No, so Darren Knight uh, is known kind of basically just on YouTube for a character. He's he's from the South and he has this character called Southern Mama that was pretty popular. But then he turned up to this showcase, basically never having done stand-up before, did, according to Twitter, some jokes about diarrhoea, um, mm. some other jokes that were actually attributed to Groucho Marx, but then with no comment, so essentially trying to pass them off as his own. And then sort of ending by saying, like, SJWs are ruining, ruining comedy and you shouldn't use it to talk about racism or sexism because you're alienating the audience. And it's like, cool, with your goatee <laughs> and your shoulder-length hair, Southern man. Yeah, of course, we're, we're alienating the audience. And uh, the absolutely uh, wonderful uh, Chris Redd, who is on SNL and features hilariously in um, Popstar Never Stop, Never Stopping, um, <laughs> took him to task. And, and, yeah. and actually just like got up in his face with righteous anger and shouted at him, real comics, write real jokes. And it was just such a wonderful moment. And I feel like hopefully that's something amidst all of this James Gunn, Johnny Depp, Chris Hardwick nonsense that we can just point to that and just go, no, there is still, we, we don't have to sweep all of this together under the rug. There are still points that we can grab onto and go, no, there is some, there is some sort of consequence. Oh, the audience booed him off the stage. I can't recommend it enough. I know you've just started <laughs> your day. Once we're done with this, you go straight to that and you'll feel a lot better about things, I promise. Yeah. Uh, and, and we obviously talked about Disney there. I think the other, certainly the, 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 monumental news of this week was that the the shareholders for disney and fox agreed to the merger between the two companies now it's been pointed out by people including uh, peter labuza who is a podcaster and writer who uh, knows a lot about entertainment law that just because they've agreed to it doesn't mean that it is a done deal it still needs to go through uh, about 12 more steps and you know it has to go through regulators and things like that who have to determine if it's a monopoly although given the current administration it's hard to see them saying no but at the same time they just did say no to the Sinclair Tribune merger which was much more uh, a Trump friendly media which they said no you can't have a monopoly on 72% of television stations in the US so who knows maybe it still won't happen but certainly it seems more likely than not at this point that disney will buy fox except for fox news but everything else that fox entails and it's been interesting seeing how the responses to this which have continued to be divided along two lines which is uh, I, I would say people who know something about how the entertainment industry works saying oh my god this is terrible we shouldn't have one company making so much of media we shouldn't have all these things being controlled by a very small group of people and people saying like we're gonna get x-men and avengers fighting each other which i think is maybe short-sighted that's the way that the majority of trades and things because i've been desperately trying to find out more about it right and the majority mm. of film criticism has been oh so this is what's gonna happen to the mcu and here are the crossovers we're gonna have and i'm like yeah. Are you is is that really what we want to be focusing on? My good friend Film Crit Hulk tweeted pretty much immediately after the news broke and he is not one for 
uh, he, he clearly and beautifully states nuance at all times. And he said, it's fucking terrifying and a death knell the industry in terms of what it will do in terms of laying people off and he also referred to it's like a coke pepsi situation like it looks like you have a choice it's the same drudge (laughs) Mm. um and it's just and of course seeming as when the first kind of bidding started to happen towards the end of last year and it looked like uh disney was sort of in the lead because comcast came in with a counter bid i think Mm. that the first one from disney was 56 billion yeah how is that even amount of money in the world and then it gets worse because then comcast came back with something in the region of like 60 billion yeah and then and then disney come back with 71 billion and i just it's just obscene but i think somewhere in that initial bid you know speaking about trump media i think trump personally rang murdoch to say how pleased he was so that's something we should all be really really scared of i think and Mm. i know what you say in terms of like there's a lot more regulatory bodies that we have to go through and i mean i really i really hope that something gets stopped on the way because it looks like i was reading up you essentially have to look at other national newspapers to find out anything about this that doesn't just state essentially events a sequence of events and to actually get some critical eye on it and i was reading um ndtv which is Indian news and then um, some uh, Bloomberg if you look at actual business rather than Mm. um, anything to do with like the film trade so to speak just business overall Bloomberg hopefully China might be able to save us because (laughs) China's regulatory structure at the moment looks like it's not going to work so with with this deal and China's such an important market Mm. so I don't know we'll see but that it's even been allowed to get to this stage again makes my head fucking spin yeah because it's bad for i mean it's bad for business in general having not that many studios competing because it means that you know disney can just kind of do whatever they want and not have to worry about competing against other people but it's fundamentally bad for art if you have one giant mega corporation that owns most of the means of producing movies and distributing movies and squeezes out you know the smaller movies from theaters what few can you know get out there now like it's very hard to see movies in theaters in the u.s that aren't distributed by these huge corporations and soon disney is going to have an even greater command of what people see and I guess people might argue like, well, you know, Disney seemed to be very progressive or whatever, but I think we've we've talked on this very episode already that they're driven by, you know, money. And even though they may profess to be very progressive on some issues, they're still driven by, you know, a rapacious desire to make as much money as possible. And that means they're probably not going to be that screw. They're not going to have particularly high scruples when it comes to actually determining what content they put in what messages they put in their movies and who's to say there isn't going to be a change of regime at disney in like 10 years time that decides it wants to push movies that have like very regressive conservative messages so just because they are all you know cast people of color and women in star wars now doesn't mean that's how it's always going to be and you'd rather 
they not have a huge control of the share of Hollywood uh, if that change happens. Please, won't somebody think of the culture? (laughs) I completely agree with you. And it's just nuts to me because if, from how I understand good yeehaw capitalism in America, surely you want several big players that make each other better and have that competition. And that's Mm. the thing with a monopoly, whether it's from a set within an incredibly left-leaning political context or a right-leaning context, it is still authoritarianism. And I, oh God, I don't know where I'm going with this, Ed. (laughs) I'm just very scared. (laughs) And if you look at like the history of Hollywood, the, the kind of the period that gave us most of the really great movies uh, that we know of either came during a period like in the, the early days of Hollywood when you had only like four or five big studios competing against each other and obviously they had a monopoly on distribution so it was a bit of a different situation and it was authoritarian in its own right but because they were competing against each other very sharply and they were all producing hundreds of movies a year there was a fertile ground for lots of great art to be made and what you end up with in this situation as someone had pointed out we're going to get like 60 or 70 fewer wide release movies a year under this deal and like maybe a lot of them would have been bad but it's better to have a bunch of bad movies being made that are incubating talent and giving people a chance than it is to just have very you know small c conservative business practices saying okay we're going to make fewer movies and they're all going to be focus tested to oblivion and they're all going to be very kind of milk toast to appeal to the widest possible audience and our final news story for this week is much lighter and i guess uh more upbeat at least in terms of the on the subject of you know more art being made is uh or admittedly it's about old art coming back was the news coming out of the the tca the television critics association press tour that the movie version of deadwood which has been long mooted, uh, basically has been talked about for 12 years at this point, is going into production in October and is going to debut on HBO next month. And also that there's going to be a new iteration of Buffy the Vampire Slayer with a new Slayer and new cast and everything. And Joss Whedon's going to be slightly involved, but it's going to be new showrunners and things like that. So uh, I am very excited about both of these things. Those things I'm more excited about deadwood just because i've been wanting to see them wrap up that story in some way so much for so long but uh certainly new buffy uh is exciting to me because that's one of my favorite shows of all time and the way they seem to be approaching it seems to me more conducive to it being really good and interesting and new as opposed to just you know redoing the old show which is always you know kind of something that's fraught with danger particularly something that's so beloved I haven't, shame on me, I haven't finished Deadwood, right? The bits that I've seen of it, I've really enjoyed. I'm really interested Mm. to see how the pace of it changes, given the fact that it's going to be this, like, concluding part, but it is a film rather than Mm -hmm. a miniseries. But obviously so much has been established and happened that it'll be interesting to see how how neat, if it is going to be neat. But I'm just, I'm always, as you know, I always come on here and I just drone on and on about structure so I'm really interested mm-hmm. to see how that translates, if it translates. The way that I feel about Buffy is, uh, surprise, surprise, pretty problematic um, mm-hmm. and apprehensive because 
I know what you mean. I still really love Buffy the show. And I think what's so amazing about Buffy at the time that it came out, it was actually so ahead of its time and set so much for the environment that we're in now that, like you say, it's not going to be a straight reboot. It's actually, you can build on and, and, and written into the actual story world is, you know, you have more than one Slayer. Mm. And, I, and I think back to the final season where it's essentially Buffy living with all these different Slayers who are all women, young women in this house. I, I look back at it now and I think that's just such an incredible image. But of course, it's all very tainted because Joss Whedon is a predator. Uh, mm. No, no two ways about it. But the show is bigger than one person, I think, and hope that it's merely a legality and royalty thing that he's going to be um, an EP on it. Um, yeah. I hope that he doesn't actually have anything to do with the day-to-day of it. It sucks if he's still going to be able to make money off of it, but as long as he is nowhere near women that he can abuse, then I suppose that's what we can take from it. And I would absolutely love to see a really exciting female showrunner. I would love to see more in terms of like decent trans representation because I still think Willow and her sexuality was treated so brilliantly and it was just so lovely. Uh, yeah, you've got the kind of <laughs> the queer death curse, <laughs> speaking mm-hmm. of curses, threaded into that, but it, it certainly felt part or part of a wider story where everyone was dealing with loss in some way. It didn't feel like, ah, oh, you know, because you are of the gay, your love shall be taken away. So I don't know, but I I still feel a little bit concerned. Again, I, I think the industry generally kind of the reboot is a tide. It's a tidal thing. You'll get a big rush of them and then people will will kind of tire of them a bit and then want other stuff. And I don't know. I'm of all the things, if you're going to reboot or finish or bring back, then yeah, Deadwood and Buffy, you could do a lot worse. Yeah, I'm certainly interested to see because also one of the things about Buffy that was so great was it was very timely in the things that it was discussing about life in high school and things like that and the metaphors that it used to explore the experience of growing up and I think uh, a lot has changed in the last 20 years in terms of like what it means to be young certainly young in America and I think that there are there's a lot of great material there to draw upon and i think if you know you have and if they can you know stick to the monster of the week and don't get too lost in serialization which is something that plagues a lot of modern fantasy shows that learned from buffy that you can tell a longer story but decided oh that's the only thing you can tell you don't need to make kind of fun exciting individual episodes that can stand up on their own i think as long as they if they can get that balance right then i think there's there's a lot of room there for it to be, you know, a, a, a really great show in its own right. Completely. We'll go on to our main topics now, which uh, we've talked about two times before. <laughs> uh, so hopefully, hopefully this is the, the, the third time's the charm. But we're going to be talking about 21st century horror. Now, when we originally decided we were going to be talking about this, it was to tie into the release of Hereditary, <laughs> which has been out for like a month now. But I think, it's, not I think it's 50 years ago it came out, Ed. Uh, that's mm, how it feels. Yeah, so for the 50th anniversary of Hereditary, <laughs> the Ari Aster movie. Um, but, but you and I were both talking about how 
much we enjoyed Ariaster's other shorts, you know, which uh, are all widely available online and are what's the, what's the problem the problem with the johnsons is that what it's called the strange thing about the johnsons the, the strange thing about the johnsons in particular uh one of the, the the scariest short horror movies i've seen in a while deeply disturbing and distressing and so we got talking about you know horror as it stands in the 21st century where particularly at the moment you know people talk about how we're going through a golden age of horror with all this this stuff that's coming out of a24 and movies that aren't from A24, but kind of seem like they would be, like It Follows. You know, there's this whole Mm. slew of indie horror movies that are getting, you know, they show up on top 10 lists at the end of the year and do okay at the box office. And you also have, you know, a lot of commercial horror getting released, which does really, really well and gets good reviews. And uh, so, yeah, so I wanted to talk about how we reach this point and what what we think about where horror is, you know, in, in 2018. And I would have to say, yes, it absolutely is in the golden age. I have never considered myself a horror fan until recently. And I think Mm. maybe it's because there's a certain sense of you come of age. If we look at horror as the genre that most directly, and for reasons I'll explain later, almost almost immediately is able to discuss the fears, whether on the surface or... Un, you know much more in the subconscious of a society of a culture then mm. i think you start you, you know you actually like horror more as you get older because you're more tuned into the world in a certain way and i certainly feel a lot more of how i feel and my experiences represented in horror as a genre than others necessarily and i think I definitely think like the majority of horror is very specifically age at the moment, as in the 21st century, it is quite specifically um, millennial concerns. And the majority Mm -hmm. of horror that's done really well has been around this kind of millennial age group as well, because you have a resurgence in the kind of, it feels like a, a lot of spins on the teen slasher movie. Whereas before, if you look at stuff like Halloween that's all still, even though you have Final Girl kind of stuff, like Laura Mulvey, her essay about actually you end up in a lot of horror like Alien and Halloween, women who kind of embrace certain aspects of different, you know, they're not hyper-feminine. They have a lot of resourcefulness and stereotypically coded masculine traits. They'll often have, you know, more sort of ambiguously gendered sounding names for example um i i hesitate to say that that's that they're incredibly feminist because essentially it's you know if you if you have sex in any way then you're an absolute toast so i can't really see them as feminist masterpieces but that kind of wider idea of something in the home in the suburbs of or or again something that's snuck onto your ship hurtling through space these kinds of elements are starting to come back and I think there's a lot in terms of the suburban we started talking about hereditary which I still haven't bloody seen sorry (laughs) um but that is again something that kind of starts in the home Ari Aster actually describes it as in an interview that I saw with him he describes it as a family tragedy that becomes a nightmare and then talks about it as horror and he talks about how horror is such a interesting genre to play within because 
it's your audience, he says, is immediately more on board to be taken far away and to be pushed because that's what they're expecting. So they'll stay with you through more than if you did perhaps in a straight up drama, which I think is really interesting in terms of how you play with expectations. Um, and I think I love, yeah, I thought the strange thing about the Johnsons is brilliant, but I also really in the two standout um, horror films of the past five years for me are It Follows and The Invitation. Mm. And I think they're yeah. incredibly beautiful and cinematic pieces of work as well. It's not just in terms of like story or like a visceral experience. The cinematography is stunning. And I think if you do generally work with kind of low budget horror, you can really make the quality of how you use sound, vision and editing to create something really special because It Follows and The Invitation are both really quite straightforward, simple setups, I hesitate to say maybe um but they're not they're not super high concept basically mm. but they're both incredibly stunning films to look at and so much of you know your scares are derived from you know your your mise-en-scene just straight kind of back to basics and i like that yeah that's that's certainly true of it follows which really does you know when you think of like the opening scene which is just the camera out on the street and a girl kind of running from something that we don't see and the camera just following her as she runs from around a neighborhood basically like that's a very simple and back to basics approach to telling that part of the story which is to have the camera sitting back looking and kind of almost embracing a kind of a quizzical curious approach the story of sense of like i wonder what's happening here and then kind of like following it sort of disinterestedly and then the next time you see the girl she's been pretty much broken in half by the the it follows monster itself and suddenly the camera is much closer and therefore the audience are as well you've gone from disinterested observer to active actively interested and involved in the story being told and I think the fact that a lot of these directors are coming up uh, clearly very interested, uh, influenced by, you know, your, your John Carpenters and Walter Hill and things like that, these old... I, I hesitate to say journeymen because they were, they were very kind of distinctive artists in their own right, but certainly people who worked within the studio system and were just kind of like workhorses who cranked out movie after movie and have since been appreciated as kind of great masters of the craft... I think that that can be seen in the the kind of influences you're seeing in things like It Follows and and Hereditary, where you've got fairly young directors coming in and really showing off the influences that they've clearly developed from years and years of, you know, renting stuff from Blockbuster and just kind of like imbibing all of these movies as their key influences and their key texts. Completely. And, and another thing from the Ari Aster interview I saw that I thought was really interesting is that, you know, he writes a script, but then his next process is to sit down with his DOP and then create a really detailed storyboard, like everything. Mm. He's, he's knows exactly how it wants everything to look and to feel and the movement. And I think that's the thing about watching his work. It's so highly stylized. It's like um, nightmarish Wes Anderson. Mm. And yeah, yeah. there are lots of kind of 
like horror and people who make horror are actually deeply sort of reverential in how referential they are to mm. other texts. And I think there's something really interesting in the conversation within horror so much more than anything else genre wise. Yeah, the Wes Anderson comparison for Ari Aster is certainly one that that I felt watching Hereditary, which opens with a long shot of the camera moving through a room and then eventually kind of like drawing closer onto a dollhouse because the Tony Collette character in the movie makes miniatures of, you know, different dioramas and things like that as her work as an artist. And as it draws in closer to the house, you see that the figures are moving within it. And so it ha it has this feel that, you know, if you saw it in a Wes Anderson movie, you know, similar to The Life Aquatic, which has that cutout of the of the, the Belafonte. Um Yeah, is that what it's called, the Belafonte? Or I think it is. It with? Yeah, I'm trying to remember which one is the name of the real ship. <laughs> which one is the name of the ship in the movie. Yeah, I think it's the Belafonte. And, you know, it's kind of a cutout and it feels very kind of precious. And in Hereditary, it doesn't. It just feels very unsettling. And, like, I, I've compared it to, you know, kind of like the point at which you at which Wes Anderson and, like, Carl Theodore Dreyer uh, collide because it has that sort of, like, real stark composition that you think of when you think of, like, uh, Audette or whatever. And I think that is is really fascinating seeing those combinations of very disparate styles and approaches to, to filmmaking coming together. And, and in terms of horror as a visual genre in general, I do feel like that's what really separates the great horrors from the the bad horrors or at least the merely fun ones is that it relies upon pretty much all of the 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 items in kind of like the toolkit of filmmaking you know everyone talks about how sound is so important to horror and there's a lot of great sound in hereditary lots of unnerving noises on the soundtrack and certainly uh the use of the the, the music which is deliberately kind of unsettling and atonal in places and also in terms of like composition and editing you know, like these are things that when deployed at their best you know in the best horror movies you know going back to, to psycho or halloween or or the exorcist or even you know just the or, or the texas chainsaw massacre which is a movie that gets a lot of mileage out of just the way that the 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 images are just so washed out and makes the place, the, the movie feel hot and claustrophobic just through Toby Hooper's shot choices and how the movie is paced. You know, horror is along with, you know, it's almost like uh, the best comedies and the best musicals in that regard. It's a uh, an outlet for filmmakers to really use every tool available to them. I think what you were saying there, Ed, is really interesting, particularly in regards to sound, because one of the most popular horror releases of this year so far is A Quiet Place, John Krasinski's mm. directorial debut, which is a popcorn movie that you can't eat popcorn in. How about that? Um, which I personally didn't like very much, I have to say. I thought the first act was really great, and then to me it just it, it lost it a bit for me, I think because it got confused about its premise and there's some really moving stuff in there about grief but again it just struck me as a very 
male view of the apocalypse again, because I'll just be honest, I find it really difficult to watch anything where a mother has been bereaved and lost her child and is living in an apocalyptic landscape and is dealing with two children who are one of whom's quite sickly and one of whom is at a disadvantage because she's um, hearing impaired and lets her husband get her pregnant again. Mm, uh, I, yeah, yeah, don't buy it. Don't buy it. I mean, they're in the pharmacy. I don't know how long it's been since this event, but I'm pretty sure that there will be at least a pack of condoms still in date. Um, but again, it's it's nice to see some really solid directing. And, and yeah, it's not my kind of horror. I am definitely very much in the millennial vague <laughs> camp of things, which is what so much is coming out just now and the stuff that I really love. And I think something like The Invitation just sort of manages to portray grief in a, in a different way. And so much of Hereditary is about grief and trauma and the things that yep. we do when we are pushed back into quite an animal space. And I think when um, you look at horror, particularly horror in the literary tradition and like the Gothic horror, when that really sort of took off, and that was around the time of, you know, after the Enlightenment, there was this idea that, like, humans suddenly got very full of themselves and were like, well, because we can measure the universe and, and we can understand it, therefore we're masters of it and we can control it. And then you mm. have the Gothic literary tradition, which sweeps in and goes, no, there is so much we don't understand. And, you know, pre-sort of psychology becoming a major field, it was a lot to do with, you know, how people do seem to be possessed or do strange things or a whim to other people and that's where you get things like zombies and vampires and ghosts because maybe that was just the best way to try and make sense of people who didn't make sense because they were under such stress and trauma and strain and I think that's come back again I think particularly things like It Follows and The Invitation and Hereditary from what I've I've read about it and from what I understand is generally a kind of moving from a very individualized isolated detached viewpoint and way of living through life that's very kind of just me or my family and then being able to open up and spread out into society at large and whether that's a good thing or a bad thing um mm. and i find that a really compelling point to make culturally i really do and the other thing that i saw not that long ago was the first purge which my dear friend stephen payton a journalist supreme said to me it's the first anti-trump film i have seen and i thought i have to see this and it absolutely is i know you haven't seen it ed so i'm just going to enthuse to you about it and hopefully okay you will get to see it at some point as will everyone else listening because i cannot recommend it enough it's a blumhouse film blumhouse mm -hmm. being um the major new kind of aggressive startup um with uh, Jason Blum at the helm, they already have like an Oscar nom picture in the banks because they produced Get Out and they have a very uh, shoot everything for as little as money as quickly as possible so that we can get a large return. And, you know, there are questions mm. to be asked about, well, what about your workers and unionising and things like that? But as a business model just now, like there's literally, you're just shooting so much that you will get pretty much as many hits as misses. Um, mm. And I think the term B-movie from now on is going to basically be as for Blumhouse because there is just so much out there. Yeah, I think one of the things that's also really fascinating about them now is they've also 
released, they've also started a ultra low budget label called Bloomhouse Tilt, which yes. is uh, put out most recently the sequel to Unfriended, which was already a movie that essentially takes place on a computer screen and didn't cost a huge amount of money. So they've made an even cheaper version with the subtitle Dark Web and also upgraded recently. So uh, was another one of there that was more of a sci-fi than a horror. So it, it's very interesting to see how Bl- uh, Jason Blum seemingly alone has figured out something that, you know, someone like Roger Corman knew 50 years ago, which is the, a really good way to make a lot of money and to make a lot of interesting movies is just make stuff super duper cheap and, you know, just kind of see what hits and, you know, a get out for them will fund uh, literally, literally hundreds of movies <laughs> yeah. over the next couple of years. Yeah, exactly. And the funny thing about Get Out, of course, is that Jordan Peele took years writing it. So I think the, mm. the script for Get Out was the best place that it could have been. It's literally the best thing that Blumhouse has ever had like on their desk, I think, before the first yeah. purge, right? And so because being able to take something that was so well-developed already and then just shoot it really quickly was that perfect marriage, and which is why Get Out's in such a good position the thing about the first purge is i've not seen any of the purge franchise at all and you don't have to because this is essentially the prequel Mm. and it is set in a time basically like ours there's it's all still quite uh it's the thinnest veil of analogy really it's not even six steps removed it's it's a half step and it's entertaining Mm. to see the art and production design choices because it's incredibly evocative without managing to point too directly. There are certain lines in it. There's there's a great mention of um, "fuck off, pussy grabber." I think is um, is one of my favourite quotes from it. But the mm-hmm. way that it it works is, we, this is the very first purge, and it's essentially a social experiment. And we have this architect of this social experiment played by Marisa Tomei. Always nice to see you, Marisa. Come on in. Who they clearly wow. only had for a day. And it's amazing because the number of shots that she is clearly not in and it's a stand-in is just... So for the first half an hour, I was just giddy with how straight up, almost like black exploitation style it was mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, there's green screen that's quite obvious and it just wastes absolutely no time in getting you right into the action. Like it's a perfect sort of three act structure, which I really appreciate because the more interesting thing is it knows where its premise lies essentially. So it absolutely rattles through the setup, but does it really well. And then um, toward later on in the film, the cinematography takes a turn and it's actually beautifully made. And it seems like they knew where to spend the money and it was like, oh, this is where it needs to look a fair bit more impressive. So we'll cut corners at the start. And there are these absolutely stunning images of um, this one shot that's all uh, set on a baseball pitch. Um, And it's all Staten Island because the idea is like, this is a a microcosm experiment that will then be, if it's successful, replicated on a national scale. And, uh, you know, there's various of dark people pulling pulling some strings. But Mm. it, it, it starts off as quite like I say, sort of almost trying to be like, oh, well, it's sort of like now, but it isn't really. And then the imagery just becomes more and more blatant and like gleefully so. I mean, this is a film that is entirely in line with my own political leanings. Maybe it's just (laughs) propaganda. I'm not sure. I really enjoyed it. And I think it's the thing that's so arresting about it 
is even though we look at kind of like a lot of horror recently like I say and the stuff that I've really enjoyed is quite millennial or a bit surreal and funny like uh, Alice Lowe's Prevenge which is absolutely spectacular as a pregnant woman whose unborn child is um, telling her to uh, to kill mm-hmm. and uh, follows her on her on her gory mission and these are all things that are quite fantastical quite engaging and entertaining in a way but the thing that just struck me about the first purge is that I other than get out I don't think I've seen something that manages to absolutely head on say if you're a black person living in America you do not need the boogeyman it's your neighbor who will kill you Mm. and that's so powerful and I think again horror just and precisely because as I sort of mentioned earlier and you were saying because of the business model of Blumhouse, it's able to respond very quickly to current affairs. Mm. The, the amount of imagery that touches on news events in the film is incredibly striking. And it's, it is able to pick up and, and push out on a quicker scale than other things necessarily, because there is a kind of like step back in executive involvement and development. And it is more just, no, go do your thing. That's fine. And um, as my friend Stephen, who's recommending it to me, said, you know, this is the first anti-Trump film. And part of me is like, why is it taken so long? <laughs> mm-hmm. But we have it now. And I think the first purge definitely opened my eyes to how on, on the back of Get Out, because they are the same production company and, and very similar sorts of themes. But again, how exciting it is to have these different filmmakers approaching you know, the still absolutely awful current situation of what it is to be black in in America in these very different ways. Yeah, I think the 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 cheapness and the speed of which you can make horror movies is a large part of what makes it such a often such a, th- a fertile genre because you don't really have the same concerns as far as the studio goes, if you're making a movie that's even, you know, costs as little as 20 or 30 million, which is, you know, very, very cheap by modern standards, because there's less of a concern that you won't be able to make your money back. That's why you get a lot of horror movies that are maybe built on the flimsiest of premises or that take kind of like really weird swings. Like, was it the movie The Last Exorcism that basically ends with uh, telling you to go to a website to see how the movie ends? Um <laughs> It's one of those it's one of those kind of like found footage exorcism movies where it literally is like the movie just stops and then a website address comes up on screen and everyone hated it rightly because that's a terrible way to end a movie but you know there's that sense that you know oh it doesn't matter because we make it for a million dollars it opens to 10 million on the first weekend because we've put a, an effective trailer together and then you know we've made more than our budget back even if in the second weekend everyone goes this is awful (laughs) let's not go sit through this again and i think that one of the things that's quite nice about uh, about horror in general is like there's a kind of an old school hucksterism to it in that regard of the sense of like okay we're just going to make everything as as cheap as possible and just get get it out the door and then see see how everything kind of like settles afterwards and that can you know that can allow for things like like the first purge where people are able to react to the climate and the uh, the situation much more quickly than if you had to sit through a lot of high level meetings with executives to justify spending like 50 60 100 million that's why you're probably not going to get a anti-trump 
blockbuster in the next four years, uh, except for, you know, the 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 vaguest kind of like, oh, these people represent decency <laughs> and being nice to each other. So I guess that counts, um, which is kind of like, I, I, I remember when the the first Super Bowl after he was inaugurated or it was some big sporting event, like all of the adverts were all about like uh, inclusivity and, you know, people generally being nice to each other and everyone online who was of the the right-wing persuasion was like i can't believe all these companies have made anti-trump adverts i was like they didn't they just made adverts about like good things and like your response maybe says more about trump than uh than them but i think that's also one of the things that keeps it the, the cheapness and the speed are one of the things that really allow it to remain kind of an exciting genre because even when you know, you get something like found footage or the early 2000s when every other movie seemed to be a remake of a Japanese or Korean horror movie. The audience burns through those fairly quickly. And so, again, to get back to that hucksterism, the the, the creators and the producers, everyone has to constantly be looking for what is the next idea or style or hook that we can come up with that will get audiences to check it out again and maybe in the case of something like get out or a a quiet place what can we do to get people who don't usually go and see horror movies out to go and see horror movies and i think that's why it remains such a an exciting genre to follow i completely agree and i think to loop back to what we were talking about in the news is mm-hmm. it's essentially the, the matrix that at the moment for horror is the absolute antithesis to what's going on with Disney and Fox. And you are able Mm. to have these more interesting um, artists and being able to make things quickly and in quite an exciting trial and error, very current sort of way. Yeah, you can really see that with like what A24 are doing because they have really taken up the mantle in in between, you know, making things like Moonlight and, and things like that. They have really taken up the mantle of making really distinctive ultimately very polarizing horror movies like things like the witch which get very 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 positive reviews and then the audience reaction tends to be a little more muted but where they have figured out oh, okay these movies maybe aren't the most commercial thing we could make but we know how to sell the hell out of it and how to construct a trailer that is really really effective and will get people in the door and that is uh, an underrated skill but i think it's also something that allows them to almost sneak these very adventurous and distinctive horror movies into a marketplace that usually wouldn't really have much room for them and they're able to establish premises very easily and if you've got a good premise if you look at something like saw for example or like Back in the day, it's more like Final Destination. But going yeah. back ever so slightly to what Ariasta was saying about um, your audience's expectations, if you start to create sequels back off that premise, because horror ones are often able to be refreshed quite quickly, so you've got that perfect balance between, oh, you sort of know what's coming, but you also kind of don't. Um, I think Blumhouse is doing the next Halloween, which looks 
I'm so up for Jamie Lee Curtis finally yeah. um, doing in her her brother. Funnily enough, there's actually a nice little nod because there's a Halloween poster in one of the characters' bedrooms in the first Purge. And I just thought that was hilarious because obviously the props department had to look in the marketing department to be able to find something to put on the wall, which I found very <laughs> endearing. But again, what you were saying in terms of like um, being able to get people into the cinema. Yeah, the franchises to a point can then border on parody and self-characterizing yeah. as Saw ended up being. I do think at the same time there is still a ritual or an enjoyment in that that people are drawn to and I think the other thing is is that horror is essentially like it's so much more in terms of your bodily there's a more physiological reaction to horror than there are necessarily to other genres so actually being able to be in a cinema which let's not forget is essentially a sensory control box um, and to really have that visceral experience horror there's always an element of you do want to go and see it in the cinema because there's might be something a little bit lost if you just watch it on a small screen at home with the rest of your life around you sometimes that's the only mm. way i can actually watch incredibly scary films but i remember <laughs> watching the first wreck film in the cinema it was exhilarating like absolutely horrifying and there's just something about being in a room full of people that you can't see but you can always hear because everyone's screaming and there's nothing quite <laughs> like that in terms of a cinema experience so i think films that generally are doing well in your cold hard box office are things that have some kind of spectacle or you know never mind 3d 4d x moving chairs all you need is a really good scare yeah i i always remember seeing the first paranormal activity at celluloid screens where it was the um where it was the the secret movie of the festival and that's a movie that doesn't have much in the way of style kind of deliberately but it has a very effective and uneasy mood to it which really had an effect on that audience everyone in the audience was just kind of generally creeped out by it and i think the success of that movie and the subsequent sequels really points to the way that you know a simple idea in that case a ghost story told you know using commercially available cameras and occasionally sticking a camera on a ceiling fan as they do in the third movie can be you know really really effective it gets to the core of horror as a genre which is using the placement of the camera and just the things that occur in the frame to shock and unnerve people and you know that franchise burnt out fairly quickly because you know they, they didn't really have that many things to lean upon other than that uh, that trick and then you know the mythology like saw as well like the mythology very quickly just got completely byzantine and hardly anyone really cared about it by the end but it was still an example of how the the lowest budget and cheapest premise you know a couple being visited by some sort of demon and them filming it just on the cameras they have around could really connect with the broad audience because it connects to you know, something very simple, which is the feeling I think most people have, which is the sense of unease when you hear something unexplained in the night, which I think anyone who's ever uh, moved into a new house certainly will be able to relate to. And then just extrapolating that, you get something really, really, that, that really, really connects with audiences. And layering that with the emotional experience of how well do you know the person you share your life with? Mm. And yeah, these yeah. things burn out, but they burn very brightly. 
Absolutely. And we end this week's episode as we end all of our episodes with Shot Reverse Shot Recommends, in which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and we think you, the listeners, will enjoy as well. Emily, what have you got to recommend for the listeners this week? Unreal. I don't know if you've ever seen it. Mm. There are three... I have. I've seen the first season and I enjoyed it a great deal. Oh, so I discovered Unreal when I was not very well a few months ago and I absolutely rinsed through it. The fourth season has just come out on Amazon Prime and I think it is utterly nuts. I love it. It's totally batshit in terms of the amount of stuff that happens every single episode. This is no filler. Just every moment is... I end up at the having watched an episode like that guy in Futurama, this man is overgasped because I just can't believe what's, ha- what's happening. And yet it all really works. It's not random for the sake of like random drama. Everything comes together and they're just a group of absolutely fascinating, immensely flawed kind of terrible characters. But throughout it's asking you to assess why you are still watching as well, because it's all based on, um, the the setting is this uh, bachelor style dating show called Everlasting, and it's set behind the scenes because basically whatever goes on behind the scenes is generally more interesting than what happens on screen. And seeing how people manipulate other people, but try to save their own skin, and and how they remain sympathetic even if you think they're horrific. And this fourth season, I think it's the final one. They are just no holds part. And I thought they had absolutely nothing to lose before, but it seems now that they're just going out in a blaze of glory. So I cannot recommend Unreal enough. Yeah, uh, Constant Zimmer, I think, is gives one of my favourite performances in a TV show in recent memory in that show. I think oh, she's, she's, uh, she's incredible. She's absolutely amazing. And in terms of really interesting female characters, you could not get better than Constant Zimmer as Quinn and Shiri Appleby as Rachel. I'm going to recommend a book which is called Room to Dream. It is a hybrid memoir biography co-written by Christine McKenna and David Lynch. And the memoir bits are written by uh, Lynch and the biography bits are written by McKenna. And it's a really, really entertaining, certainly for someone like me who's watched a lot of David Lynch's work, it's a really fun, entertaining journey through his life from growing up in uh, Idaho and Virginia and places like that all the way through to the making of Twin Peaks The Return but the thing about it that's really interesting is the tension that exists between the McKenna chapters where she is recounting kind of like the biographical details and the production details of each movie and talking to his collaborators and getting their side of the story and then Lynch's chapters which are essentially reacting to her chapters and saying <laughs> things like uh, well, I don't quite remember like that. Or yes, uh, you know, that's right. I did want to cut a hole in Jürgen Prochnow's face <laughs> while making <laughs> Dune, <laughs> um, which is a, a, an absolutely crazy thing to admit to, but uh, very, very Lynchian. And and also there's like this really interesting, interesting tension that exists between McKenna trying to be this objective observer of the facts and on occasions, you know, saying things like, you know, I don't, think there's any one inciting instance that you can point to to explain how someone becomes an artist and then lynch providing the personal perspective where at some points he literally recounts scenes from his childhood which are like directly from a david lynch movie he's like oh maybe maybe it's a lot more simple than she's willing (laughs) to admit like there is literally one bit where where he's talking about going for a drive with his dad on a empty road in the middle of the night with nothing but the headlights illuminating the road and then them stopping because his dad wants to shoot a porcupine (laughs) uh, 
which you read that and you think that seems like it may have influenced some of your style and aesthetic this checks uh, out this checks out yeah yeah um but it, it's it's a it's a wonderful book and uh i i've been reading it but i think that uh it's also worth checking out the audiobook which i've listened to samples of just because it's really fun to hear to hear david lynch say things like uh the Cuisarts haderacht and things like that it's just <laughs> like yeah it's it's just <laughs> and hearing him just kind of like recount these things in his his wonderfully offbeat and folksy way uh, so anyone who's interested in lynch's work it, it's it's really worth checking out it's on my list uh thank you emily for coming on the show again uh, have you got anything you'd like to plug Yes, I do. So I produce a podcast called Past Tense, which my friend Fiona Barnett researches and writes and uh, presents. And we've been on a wee bit of a hiatus because, you know, life. Um, But Mm -hmm. we will be um, finishing up this volume very soon. So if you haven't listened before, now's the perfect time to start from the top and get yourself acquainted. And it's a history podcast and we are focusing on the British Civil Wars so, you know, all of this constitutional upheaval between nations and power battles, if that strikes a chord with anyone, rings a bell at all at this time. Mm-hmm. So if anyone would like to listen to that and please do give us feedback, please go to our website. We're pasttensepod.com and we're also on Twitter and you can find us wherever good podcasts can be downloaded. Great. If you've enjoyed this episode of the show, then please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM. And you can also find us on Spotify. We're on Spotify now if you if you use that platform. And please rate us and review us and recommend us to your friends. It's the best way to help us grow our audience. We are also on Facebook and Twitter where we, were at, we are at SRS underscore podcast. We'll be back next week with something entirely different. But until then, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Bye. Bye.